Hi, I'm Lavinia. And I'm Kelly. Welcome to season two of There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel, their stories, their experiences told in their own voices. There's a specific kind of magic that happens when women go traveling, and the stories that spring from those experiences are diverse and limitless. Stories of harrowing escapades, quiet epiphanies, powerful connections, transformative moments, and wild possibilities. There She Goes is a storytelling podcast. It's also an invitation to escape, briefly, to some distant elsewhere with a kindred companion. We hope it offers the exact travel infusion you need right now, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a vicarious journey to hold you over till you're ready to go exploring again, or inspiration for your next adventure. We love sharing these stories and storytellers with you. So pack your bags and settle in, because here we go. Today we travel with Samantha Shea to Venice, Italy, where she basks in afternoon espressos, pitchers of Prosecco, flirtation with an Italian man named Fluvio, and the pure happiness of being unfettered. Samantha is a writer, traveler, and mom in San Francisco, where she works as the books editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. Her essays, fiction, and journalism have appeared in many places, including the New York Times, Seventeen, and Travel and Leisure. She was once briefly detained in Panama due to a hotel towel kerfuffle. Sono Felice by Samantha Shea. I'm in Venice and I'm smoking. It's the first time a cigarette has touched my lips in 10 years, and it's heavenly. It's like your first ice cream cone. It's like going back in time and grinding with your high school boyfriend. It's also the first time I've been this far from my kids since their birth three years ago. I haven't seen them in 48 hours, and I do not miss them. Because really, how could you when you're standing outside a Venetian bar, smoking cigarettes and flirting in extremely broken Italian, with a guy named Fulvio who's wearing dress pants and flip-flops. Fulvio, it sounds like a female body part. My Fulvio is inflamed. After weeks of worrying about what I would wear in Italy, how I would stand up to their rigorous but mysterious standards of bella figura, I am flirting with Fulvio in an oversized men's t-shirt the color of poop and a cheap straw fedora that was crushed in my suitcase and revived only with much scrunching and lowering of standards. I am dressed like I am, badly, even by American standards, because I've spent the day rowing an outrigger canoe through the Adriatic with a bunch of Italian outrigger enthusiasts, friends of friends of Hillary's, don't ask. It was a day you couldn't invent. A giant seafood lunch, pitcher after pitcher of slightly fizzy white wine poured from a barrel, men named Carlo and Flavio and Mauro who thought we were charming. Italian men who think you are charming is, by the way, the quickest and most effective route to actually being charming. It was a whole day in which I didn't know where I was, island or mainland, no idea. When I was told to row, I rowed. When I was told to swim, I jumped with everyone else into the green water and splashed about, letting my coral-colored toenails peek above the water just for the pleasure of seeing those colors together. It was like being in an anthropology catalog except we were smiling. I have been known to say that I can't have a good time when I feel ugly. But even my hideous outfit, which has the effect of a fading mosquito bite, vaguely irritating, but not life-ruining, 
can't keep me from declaring out loud, clutching the scrawny arm of my friend Hillary, that I am happy. I'm shining like a sorority girl, lit up with stupid joy. How do you say it in Italian, I ask? Sono felice. And I take another sip of my Prosecco, which, because it costs $1.50 a glass, and because it's perfectly warm in the narrow alley where we found this bar, I drink many glasses of. Sono felice, I say. Baggy brown t-shirt be damned. I am happy. It could be 8.30, it could be midnight, I don't care. It's not until later, back at our borrowed apartment, and eating the most gorgeously wrapped cookies you've ever seen, I would wallpaper my bedroom with these cookie wrappers if I could get away with eating that many, that I realized that I haven't felt this way in a long time, and that I am this happy in part because my children are not here, because I can afford not to know the time, because no one is going to wake me up at 6.30 in the morning complaining of urine-soaked sheets or clamoring for cereal. My father once told me that the pleasure of travel is egolessness. He is a Buddhist, and this is how he talks. When you are away from your life, you lose the markers of self and you are liberated from your ego. And I think he's right. In Venice, I have no minivan. I have no career, failed or otherwise. No family, no shameful fugue state trips down the aisles of Target. No dog reminding me of my finite capacity for love. This is liberation, the untethering of identity. Plus, you get to eat and drink everything your eyes light upon. I'm here for a week, eight days if you count all the flying, and I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to feel guilty, that I am at least supposed to make a show of missing my children. I know people, they're the same ones who know a lot about things like hormones and meat and which preschools are best, who are proud of the fact that they have never spent a night away from their children. People who claim not to be able to enjoy a movie because they can't stand the time away from their kids. These are not my people. When my children were only weeks old, what I longed for more than anything else was a night alone in a hotel room. I fantasized about the sheets, smooth and cool as marble. There are moments when I miss my kids in a physical way, the slippery smoothness of their perfect skin when they emerge from the bath, the way their tiny soft hands pat my cheek sometimes when they're liking me a lot for some reason. But these are only fleeting. The truth is, I do not want to share this with them. I want this week to myself, unencumbered by three-year-olds and their wants. I will wipe no asses but my own. Forget egolessness, this is liberation. Except for the bells, which seem to celebrate everything. Hooray, it's 11. Hooray, the sun rose. Hooray, the sky is blue. Venice is the quietest city I've ever been in. Seagulls do their frantic calls. Catholics sing from unseen courtyards as if they were hired just to make this place even more surreal in its perfection. Not only are there Gothic marble palaces sinking into the sea, there is a choral soundtrack to put you in the mood. There are no cars in Venice, of course, so we walk through alleys and over bridges, sometimes with somewhere to go, sometimes aimlessly, to the left because the light is nice, to the right because we can glimpse some perfect garden behind a locked gate. To say it is maze-like is not quite right. A maze implies frustration, repetition. I picture hungry, irritable rats. In Venice, the wandering is joyful and light. There's always a gelateria around the bend. There is always another pink building sprouting geraniums from its window boxes. I recently walked through a labyrinth in California. It was a small circle made of stones in the woods near the bank of a creek. 
I wanted to feel some transformation in the labyrinth, but I didn't know what kind to expect. Also, I was in a hurry. My husband Pete was keeping the kids occupied with rocks and flowers nearby while I checked it out, but I could hear them plainly. It was just a matter of time before they got wind of my solitude and rushed in to fill the void. As I began, I imagined some mysterious force or energy might materialize from the pattern of the stones. I hoped, but also doubted, there was something to it and that I would feel that something if I just followed directions and gave in to what I normally dismiss as New Age hooey. What there was was simple. By following the labyrinth, surrendering to its turns and directions, you triumph over your desire to go straight. You can plainly see your destination, the center of the circle, but you are constantly turning away from it, backtracking and looping. You lose a sense of direction and give up on your own impatience. I was actually getting pretty into it until Oliver picked up one of the labyrinth stones and hurled it into the bushes, and I had to jump over the lines, forsaking the journey for this destination to scold him. Oliver, I say, you do not throw these rocks. These are special rocks that someone put here. Oliver looks at me. His eyes are almost ridiculously round. He looks like a Cupid doll and says, Mama, you are making me very angry. Hillary and I are in the museum cafe with the communist professor and the book editor. We've just looked at a lot of contemporary art, glass molds of negative space, life-sized headless taxidermied horses sticking out of walls, much of which I don't understand. Because they are mannered people, the editor and the professor speak English for my sake. And because I am overly enthusiastic and prone to imitation, I speak with my hands for theirs. We are talking about the bourgeoisie, about how Milan is not a city for intellectuals. Or rather, they are talking about this. I am sitting in a fog of jet lag, breathing through my mouth. But even in my lumbering way, I'm glad to be where I am. It's not often that I sit around in the middle of the day drinking tiny cups of espresso and discussing the Milanese bourgeoisie. In fact, it is never. My life in its current manifestation is not a life for intellectuals. At a break in the conversation, Hillary asks Margarita, the book editor, if she's married, and she emits that wonderfully dismissive Italian boh, as if to say, the very idea is ridiculous. Married? What on earth do you take me for? And she and Hillary laugh a little laugh of solidarity, and I look around the bright white museum cafeteria at all the married couples, Italian, French, English, American, Polish, as they silently munch their tiny sandwiches and sip their glasses of Prosecco. I love my husband, but I know I'm having a better time here without him. Being with Hillary is like being with a new lover, without all the distracting sex. We hold hands as we walk along the canals. She laughs at my jokes until she pees. She tells me my outfits are super cute. Traveling with her is like having a guiltless affair. I am revived and freshened by her new eyes. It is the closest I've ever come to cheating on Pete. So it's almost a betrayal when in the next breath, Hillary tells our gorgeous companions that I am the mother of twins. When this moment comes, as it inevitably does in any conversation, there is always a part of me that wants to lean across the table and press my finger to her lips. Because once I'm the mother of twins, I'm the mother of twins, with all the attending associations of sagging and routine. I am no longer a charming young friend of Hillary's who appeared out of nowhere to drink pitchers of Prosecco and waltz through the Piazzo San Stefano. 
I am a sturdy 39-year-old changer of diapers and monitor of table manners. I am someone who regularly clips someone else's toenails. Suddenly, the fact that I'm smoking a cigarette is unseemly. The fact that I am where I am is suspicious. No wonder I don't have much to add to the discussion about the influence Francois Pinault is having on modern art in Italy. I'm too busy wondering if my kids have had their afternoon bowel movement. And yet I don't lean across the table because along with the associations of elongated nipples and playground harping, being a mother earns you immediate legitimacy. I am not alone in the world. I am not without purpose. And the mother of twins, forget about it. I'm capable as shit. I have instant position and my belly, which protrudes from my dress like a bulbous scarlet letter, is more easily forgiven. Still, the professor and editor don't have much to say about my motherhood. How old are they, they ask? What are their names? But now, finally, I know what I'm talking about, even if I feel less like Sophia Loren as I say it. The rest of our week is a movie montage. Here we are riding bicycles on Lido. Here we are perusing a flea market. That's us cooling off in the fountain. Us again in the ghetto eating falafel and hummus. And eating, always eating, mortadella and gelato and tiny sea snails. We capture it all in golden-hued photos, self-portrait after self-portrait after self-portrait, our arms stretched as far as they will reach. We document our days as if even we won't be able to believe it was real. On our last night in Venice, we meet up with Fulvio again. Hilary and I have been drinking Prosecco since lunch, fortifying ourselves between museum visits with ombre de vin, shadows of wine, and some bits of fish on toast. We look at modern art from Iran and blinking light installations set to pounding hip-hop music. We see 14th century painting with all its guilt and purpose, Madonna after Madonna after Madonna, with Jesus in her arms like some shrunken old man. I try to pick out the Tintoretto paintings, but I'm hopeless. I'm still getting used to the idea that people were around 600 years ago, walking upright and making fire. My sense of time is all fucked up, and I can no longer really blame jet lag. Fulvio meets us at a bar filled with college students and old men in beautiful shoes. He is wearing dress pants and flip-flops again. His fly is undone, and he has a deflated-looking canvas bag over his shoulder. He has just come from practicing his trombone, and his upper lip is puffy and red. I don't know why Fulvio likes us so much. He owns a newsstand next to the Academia and spends his days selling postcards to tourists at a 500% markup and playing chess. I imagine that he gets his fill of tipsy Americans toting digital cameras and asking questions about where to find that Hemingway bar. Still, he does like us. You can see it in the crinkle of his eyes when he locates us in the sudden dimness of the bar. Hillary and I are maybe five glasses ahead of him, but we're not exactly drunk. Lit might be a fair assessment. We are buoyant and gleaming, our faces hurt from grinning, and I felt all day as if we were about to fall into a kiss. It's as if we exist at the very best part of a romantic comedy, the jittery, exquisite moment before the climax. I'm pretty sure we have a soundtrack, and I'm pretty sure it's by Katrina and the Waves. Although we like Fulvio immensely, not least because of his disheveled, absent-minded professor helplessness, we can't help wondering if his presence might break our magic. 
But even when Hillary starts weeping drunkenly at the lovely outdoor restaurant where we are eating yet more fried fish and drinking a white wine, Fulvio smells like cat pee, but in a good way, the golden bubble in which we've been floating does not burst. Why doesn't he love me, she hiccups, tears streaming down her face, arms splayed on the shower of crumbs left on our tablecloth. She is speaking of the latest in a string of almost loves, having been reminded that tomorrow she will return home to take up their troubles where they were suspended when she left. Fulvio and I look at each other over our wine glasses like indulgent parents. Somehow, because he is Italian, I imagine he will be okay with a moment like this in a way an American man would not. Lost love, weeping women, they eat this stuff for breakfast. For me, her lament is only vaguely familiar. I remember what that yearning feels like, that consuming bittersweetness, but only sort of. If I were to let the looming return of real life into this moment, it would be filled not with the longings of romantic love, but with the dreaded return to myself. What I see lurking at the edge of the golden bubble on our last night in Venice is the real me, the American wife and mother, suffering as she does from minor but chronic irritation and impatience. At home, my husband and I have just started couples therapy. Our kids have discovered whining, and our dog has once again chewed his paws into an infected mess. I turn away from Hillary and look out across the water at the sparkling lights on San Marco and sigh. Sono felice, I say for the thousandth time. Fulvio, now seated between a weeping woman and one who exclaims her happiness like an obsessive parrot, has no choice but to laugh. You keep saying that, he says, and it is funny because you do not need to. We can tell you are happy. We can see it when we look at you. The evening sun sets the rose-colored buildings aglow. I am sipping my tenth glass of Prosecco, and tonight my outfit is totally working for me. There is no possible way not to be happy. You've been listening to season two of There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's narratives are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. Be sure to tell your friends about There She Goes and follow us on your favorite platforms. And most of all, come back for more illuminating stories from around the world. Oh,